Hi, I'm Damon Hill, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Do you want me to say it without the funny emphasis? <laughs> <Up> to you, <laughs> mate. <laughs> Hi guys, Tom Clarkson here, welcoming you to another episode of your favourite podcast, Beyond the Grid, presented by Bose QuietComfort 35-2 wireless headphones. My guest this week is a man for whom racing is in the blood. It's the family business. His father, Graham, was a two-time world champion, and he became the first son of to attain similar heights in 1996 when he won the title while racing for Williams. I'm talking, of course, about Damon Hill. Damon's first experience of racing came on two wheels, and it was only at the age of 24, when most modern-day F1 champions are already in F1, that he switched his attention to car racing. He made it to F1 eight years later, and he won his 13th race. During his 115 starts, he experienced every emotion under the sun. In fact, this episode is released 25 years to the day after Damon experienced the despair of losing teammate Ayrton Senna during the San Marino Grand Prix at Imola. That's just one of the many topics we discuss, including, of course, his crowning glory in 96 when he won the sport's ultimate prize. We caught up in between sessions at the Chinese Grand Prix, where he was in cracking form. Funny, thoughtful and articulate. Typical Damon, really. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Well, Damon, welcome to Beyond the Grid. Pleasure to have you on the show. Now, you're a man who's achieved a lot in his life, not least winning the 1996 World Championship. But what's your proudest achievement? Uh, I think it's a funny thing when you say you, someone has achieved a lot. I mean, I, uh, it's, I don't know whether, whether it's because you don't spend your whole time looking back. You know, you, most of the time you're think I, I'm find myself thinking of what I could be doing now. And I'm mostly frustrated because I feel like I could be doing a lot more and then I'm looking for something to do. And so, uh, but when we take time out and look back and you go, my goodness, my, I did all of that, you know, but my Formula One career was incredibly short. So what am I most proud of? I think I'm proud of having at least done something, <laughs> you know, and, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I didn't waste, waste all that time. I mean, I wasted a lot of time trying. Well, I didn't waste a lot of time, but I spent a lot of time trying to get to F1. Uh, um, and when I got there, I made the most of it. So I'm proud of that. Now, you say you're frustrated. Are you still a frustrated racing driver? Is there a little bit of you that wishes yeah. you were back out there in, there in something? Is, I don't think it's possible to be a, a competitive person and, and kick that habit. I just think it's, it's, in, it's in us. Um, I use that word, us. I think all competitors have their own particular m motives, drives. They come from some different places, I expect. But fundamentally... Um, you like to test yourself and 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 do something and and be not necessarily be the best at it but at least be one of the few very good people at it <laughs> okay so in what form does that take its it well when i went up all that energy went into i'm not so uh, i mean I, I would like to i'd like i surf i'm not an excellent surfer but i like to get better and i think that's um uh, goes for whether I'm, you know, playing something on the guitar or or playing golf. You know, I've, golf is probably the most frustrating invention ever presented to mankind because it doesn't matter. It doesn't respond to trying harder. Uh, it just doesn't give you what you want. It's it's, it's a most peculiar thing. Where, but isn't race driving a bit like that as well? No, it's not. I mean, I honestly, you can overdrive very easily, can't you? I don't know what what the difference is or why. I think I've always been best suited, adapted, naturally uh, adapted to what I call sports where I'm the projectile. So anything that has a projectile in it, like tennis or football or golf, I'm no good at because I'm not the thing flying through space. Whereas if I'm skiing or surfing or driving a racing car or ri racing a motorbike, I seem to get it. Now, what about your children? Have any of them inherited this, what do we call it, competitive gene? Um, yeah, I think it's it's that kind of bug that keeps biting you and sort of going, you're, you're not good enough, you need to be better. 
And who's got them? I mean, I, I think um, of Josh. Don't, they don't have they don't have No, it. mercifully, they've all managed to avoid that. Even um, Josh, because he did do a yeah. bit of racing, didn't he? No, I think they're, they're much more mellow and they're, they're much... I, I think maybe Tabitha is quite competitive, it, academically. You know, she's doing her master's. So my, Tabitha was my second... Sorry, my first girl daughter, my third child. Um, and she's very ambitious uh, academically and pushes herself very hard. I wouldn't say that, uh, obviously my first child, Oliver, has got Down syndrome and he's, he's basically found out the secret of life. You know, he manages to, to have the right philosophy about everything. Josh did racing, did competition and found he didn't like it and went off and uh, now works uh, in Mercedes-Benz world, um, teaching people to drive performance cars and, and, and then his other job that is his passion is his music and he drums beautifully. Was there a tiny bit of you that was disappointed when Josh hung up his helmet? It's almost like he'd sort of given up on the family business in a way. Mm, I suppose a bit of me was a little bit... Um, was I, I was actually pleased for Josh that he'd found the answer. And, you know, I was pleased that he knew himself that this wasn't where he wanted to be and what he, what he wanted to do. Because I think that there's enormous pressure, which is difficult, I guess, for most people to understand that, you know, you don't want to let the side down. You don't want to be the, the weak link that kind of stops this thing. And maybe I shouldn't have picked up the baton. I don't know. I mean, I did. And Why I did on. you? Well, I suppose there was, there must have been a mixture of two things. One was some innate competitiveness and desire to race and also the pure love of being out there and, putting in a pole lap or winning a race um and also some i think it was mixed quite heavily a heavy dose of emotional content because of what happened to my dad and and how much i felt i needed to make things right again i guess you know there's <clears throat> um, win back what the family had lost is, is that I, what you're saying not not win back materially no it was just that uh, I th I did feel I think when my dad died that it was a bloody shame that all that hard work and everything he achieved just so literally went up in smoke and um, I I just thought for us you know for the family it would be good to kind of fight back and you know you don't lie down and just give up you fight back you get back up again and, and have another go and so there was a, I think that was a component in in my ambition to to get to the top although having said that I never I never expressed a desire to race cars when he was alive and I never had any ambition until I sat in a racing car and someone had said to me look why don't you try your hand at, at racing cars rather than bikes had dad lived do you think you would have become a racing driver no i see i think i i think it's a very interesting question can't answer that i don't know i think probably not i think he was he would be he would probably have run his own formula one team it you know probably would have gone along the lines of something like williams i expect you know um it was starting to come together um in the mid 70s and he probably would have been one of these names you know in in the grid in the in the paddock i suppose as a team and i probably would have either have gone my own way and done something else or been involved in that so dad died when you were 15 yet you didn't start racing cars tell me if i'm wrong until you were 24 yeah intervening uh, 23 was when i went to winfield uh yeah i had a go at winfield and then i did the end of the season championship called the bbc grandstands winter series formula ford 2000 and that was in 83 probably the, the first time that murray walker commentated on you no because i think murray commentated on me doing the yamaha pro <laughs> or something <laughs> like that back in Don at donnington park <laughs> so but so so yeah. why why bikes the first love seems to be bikes even now yeah. you're passionate about bikes. i don't know i think it's i think it's partly an aesthetic thing i think they look great i think the imagery from bike racing to me it was more appealing than cars um and just you look at a guy riding a bike 
on the limit and it's it's a it's a miracle they stay on i mean i just think it's there's something that is um more more tangible about it uh, i think the balance thing is is appealing to me whereas you look at a car and it looks like it's uncomfortable you know it doesn't like going around the corners it's uh it's um and you can't see the what the actual what the drivers are actually doing they're not doing anything with their body they're doing doing stuff with their hands and feet but they're not actually using their body to to ride it so i've been researching you damon hill and i was trying to find some i was trying to find some info out about your bike career and there isn't an awful lot out there um just tell us how good were you well i was good before i stopped i mean i i had talent i think but i had no idea what i was doing and i i used to turn up at race meetings i never did any practice i mean, used to turn up literally and hope to hope to win um i couldn't even get the bike started you know i spent most of my time pushing the bike and uh but everyone else had gone and so i was just fundamentally you know i had i had no idea no one and that's the thing about you lose your dad you don't have someone telling you what you know what you're supposed to be doing you don't have someone saying oh, that's not how you do it you've got to do this and this and this and so i had to learn the hard way and when when i eventually worked out that i i'm gonna have to you know i i, I had a go and i ba- basically bit off more than i could chew um and eventually my backers pulled out and i had to go and uh fund myself and i i just thought okay well let's start from the beginning and once i started from the ground up and and done it bit by bit i things started to click and then i started winning races and and in fact i won every single race i'd entered in 1984 on bikes so why'd you stop 83 sorry why'd you stop 84 yeah 84. why'd i stop because the car thing was coming coming together so at the same time that my bike career well i mean it's only tw- it was only club level racing sure but I won, but you're I won national races. they had national events there and i also won at other circuits so i definitely had made some progress but i could see there wasn't you know, the career trajectory for um trajectory i've just invented a new word trajectory <laughs> trajectory um for um for bike racers is well, you're going to break your leg or your arm <laughs> and you're probably not going to earn a great living and so it was a slightly pragmatic decision i thought well car racing has a maybe a longer term future and maybe a bit more protection and maybe a bit more money so how would you sum up the early years of your car racing career you did a bit of formula ford or was it third in the formula ford festival at brands hatch in the uk and then you won a handful of races in formula three yeah moved up to three thousand i can't believe you didn't win a race in three thousand because you're on pole quite no, a lot well, what happened you? was actually the story is that i i again with cars i was being a late starter i didn't do karting and i didn't i I had to learn this whole new world this whole new um kind of culture and it was very strange to me and i um so i i was a bit slow on the uptake i'm really Um, sorry to interrupt you but was it alien to you because you know you attended a lot of races with dad you were I've seen lots of photos of Jim Clark, Jackie Stewart, mm. all those guys coming around your house when you were small. Mm. So the whole racing atmosphere mm. and being surrounded by these competitive yeah, people wasn't when you're, when you're we're actively involved in it, I was just a spectator. When my dad was doing it, I was literally just hanging around watching people do things. Um, I wasn't actively involved in, in how it was done. I mean, I knew my dad's, what my dad's attitude was to things and I knew he was a very hard worker and an incredibly determined individual. But... Uh, the more I learned about my dad, I would say that he perhaps tried too hard in certain areas and he didn't delegate perhaps to um, enough to people when he was running his team. Um, and that's a, real, that's a real talent. So the organizational skills are a different skill set. Racing drivers tend not to be that good at that side of it. They tend to be one you know, they're a one-man band and they tend to slot into a team. And, and what I found with, um, with car racing was you had to be with a good team and, and they, you let those people give you the equipment and then you just drove it. And, and that wasn't how I saw my racing. I, with my bike, I'd, I built the bike myself, I prepared the bike myself, I did everything myself. So I had complete control over it all. And what I wasn't terribly good at understanding was that... Um, you know, you you 
get the right people around you. Um, I mean, I tried, but I, I think being, I, I, th I felt like I was always trying to convince people that I was any good um, because there had been so much press around me starting. I think it was quite a lot of skepticism and a lot of people were not sure what to make of me. And I never really felt like I was regarded as a proper driver as say some of the other people who were around Until me. what point in your career? When do you feel you started to get... When do you feel you started to get, you know, what you deserved in terms of reputation? Maybe and, maybe when I started leading Formula 3 races. I, yeah. I think I people started to uh, think, well, I've got something. But, you know, that was always in comparison to Herbert or, you know, or Donnelly and stuff. And I knew I was slightly on the back foot against these guys because they, they were they were wholly committed and had been for a long time to being racing drivers and I hadn't, you know, I'd, I'd come at it late and, and perhaps in the wrong direction. So it was a mishmash. And by the time I got to the end of the eighties, I'd run out of, um, chances, you know, so actually my career was on the rocks in by 89 where I'd, um, I hadn't got a Formula three drive for the following year. I've got no, I got no drive actually. I, I just bought a house and we just had our first child and um and more and interest rates were 17 and percent and we just got <laughs> what, what was mrs hill making of it all at this uh, time can I, you go I and get a no, proper job always, she, no not? no she was never she never right. did anything like that um no she was not from the racing world so i think she didn't quite understand maybe she did understand what i was trying to do but but um i i took a different tack i think being turfed out in a sense um is is a very sobering experience and and having certainly having a family is a sobering experience and um so i think i realized then that, uh i my approach must be wrong you know i had to change reassess my approach to to so racing what, what did you change well i just i just thought i listen I, am i going i thought you know i could have given up and gone and got a proper job um, but I thought, well, I'm going to give this one more go because, but, but this time I'm going to, any chance I get, I'm going to give it 110% of myself and, and see what comes. And I, so I literally just thought. Implication okay, I, being that you weren't giving 110%. Well, I thought I was, but I clearly wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I didn't realize the, the chance that I had, uh, in my, in my first, um, phase as a as a racing driver you know i didn't there was there's more to any career than just what you do you know it's everything it's all the other stuff almost playing the game do you feel and also that i mean but but were you good not at so much that is um no i wouldn't say um but i think i was quite um determined i, th I was quite determined to find a way up but i think with british racing drivers in those days it wasn't so easy you had people with pots of money coming from italy and uh you know around the world and getting money together was was a i mean it was this didn't happen you know you so i knew i had to get the scraps i had to get whatever was going and not complain and just do the best job i could so in 1989 i drove at le mans i got richard lloyd gave me a drive in his porsche 962 i think yeah and uh i did touring cars I did a bit of Formula 3, I think. I did um, British Formula 3000. I got, and then I got a drive at the end of the year uh, with the footwork, which was the worst car in Formula 3, in F3000 at the time. But I, it, was, it was a job. <laughs> How amazing, yeah. So or talking of jobs, so, so you're on the back foot. Um, how did the Williams test drive come about in 91? Absolutely. I've heard so many stories well, from the horses. Man. Okay, so it's it completely by... I think this is the curious thing, is I've been banging my head on this wall and it wasn't cracking. And then everything stopped and I... 1989, I just did what I could to get my hands in and I knew that I'd... You know, dry, I, whatever I did, well, I'd be happy with whatever I got, you know, and I'd just, I'd just do the best I could with it. And um, by pure chance, Mark Blundell... Um, had uh, vacated his seat at Middlebridge, I think, and gone to test drive for McLaren, I think. Or Williams, no, sorry, Williams. And, um, and then, so I got the drive at Middlebridge, and the car turned out to be really good. 
So I got myself on pole position a few times. It kept breaking down. I led races and then it kept breaking down, but I was clearly one of the quick guys in the formula. And I liked those cars. They seemed to suit my style better. And so that, I got noticed by Patrick Head and then um, Mark Blundell <laughs> decided he was going to go to McLaren as a test driver and vacated the seat at Williams and said, there's a seat, Damon, there's a seat going at Williams, mate. You know, if you're not, so I'm like, so you are your career. Better go and see. <laughs> yeah, so he, every time he can move, so I kind of moved up. And um, and so uh, you better go and have a chat with, with Frank. So I got I got on their radar and I got given the test job. But don't forget, in those days, being a test driver was, was a sign that you had failed. You'd not made it to the big time. You were just a, an understudy. Except that Williams were, you know, they were the big cheeses back then, weren't they? Completely, and, yeah. I mean, did you, so you approached the team. They didn't approach you. I think it was, yeah, I think it was a bit of both. I can't, right. I can't honestly remember. Okay. I think it must have been because I think I got the nod from, from Mark that he was going. So I think I, I, think I did approach them. And then, um, but it went well. And you got a lot of miles. I think 18,000 miles over two years. Oh my God. Years. I mean, we were just... I, I How was often were you in the car? All the time. I mean, it was, <laughs> there was, wasn't a simulator in those days. It was real testing. There was the Williams active car I was working on as well in 91. And I was racing and testing in Formula 3000. So I was in a car the whole time. And that was really good for me because it, it toughened me up. You know, I, I got all the miles I needed. And... Um, it prepared me, you know, I, and I, I don't forget I was 30, but then I was 30 years old, 31, and I wasn't in Formula One. So, you know, how many drivers are out there now in early 30s who've got a chance of getting into Formula One I haven't been in yet? You know, they're not going to get a chance, are they? Then it's just not even going to look at them. So I was, I was in the waiting room, unbeknownst to me, um, for the drive that came along. Um, because of my mileage with, with Williams and, and knowing the active car and when Nigel left unexpectedly and they'd signed Alan Prost and, and Senna didn't get the drive as well because Prost was there and you know they had to look around and, got, and scratch their heads thinking well who can we put in the car and I was the only person left <laughs> That's so but I suppose you should take, rightly, a lot of credit for that active car of 92, 93, because it was no, a lot of your work, I it? No, I, it wasn't my work. I mean, you know, the, the engineers do the work, but what, what I did work with, with Paddy, because we were basically... Paddy Lowe. Sent, yeah. Paddy Lowe, yeah. um, and he'd done all the software and the, and the you know, the, the, the systems on this car, because it needed a computer to run it, and he was a computer scientist. So, so Patrick and Adrian really designed the, the car itself, um, together with Renault, and but the, the the suspension systems needed understanding and setting up. So I did a lot of that fine tuning stuff with them um, to see what it could do. Because literally, you could do anything. So you know, but you know. It, it's fair to say though, isn't it? That although you were okay, you had two races under your belt with Brabham prior to that break with Williams in '93. But you were far from a rookie in a way because you had more mileage under your belt than an awful lot of guys on the grid, right? Um, in terms of I don't know if I had. I mean, I'd been racing since... In terms of Formula One mileage, I mean. Formula One mileage, absolutely, yeah. And also, I knew that with the right equipment, you can put yourself at the top of the timesheets. So I thought, well, how difficult can it be then? <laughs> yeah. But given all the adversity, can you remember, even now, all these years later, that phone call from Frank to say, you're the man, we want you? Yeah, he said... Um, he said... Um, he phoned me on a Friday... About most people get sacked on a in, the, in the afternoon, <laughs> and he he said, "Oh, Damon, um, it's Frank here. Um, uh, I uh, I wondered if you could come up to the factory." And I said, "Well, Frank, it's Friday night. <laughs> you know, I don't want to have to drive all the way up there and be told <laughs> bad news." So oh, I think you'll find it as good news or something like that. So I jumped in the car and off I went. Yeah, and what? Just signed the contract there and then, and. Uh, yeah, he just basically offered me the drive and a few quid. <laughs> Pocket money. <laughs> and what, the first person you called was Mark Blundell? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I think Mark was spitting a bit because he'd gone to McLaren, but he was, you know. But because Williams plucked you from relative obscurity, did you feel during your years at the team that you slightly owed them something? Was there... 
Did you ever get beyond that in your relationship? No, I don't, I don't. I think I might have done, but you know, you, it, a massive plaudits and, and arms around the shoulders and pats on the back are not the Williams way. They don't. That's not how they went racing. You know, their their drivers typically looked after themselves and didn't need. They had oodles of confidence and, and encouragement. They did from themselves. They didn't need um, anything from Frank and Patrick. So um, it's not that kind of team. But I did feel that 96, I, I think they did. Um, you know, they, they felt pleased that I'd won the championship and, and I delivered um, what, they, what they'd been after. So pleased. That they moved you on. They're so pleased they gave me the sack. <laughs> no, but before actually, we come on. I, yeah, okay, we'll jump in ahead. Okay, yeah, go on. No, just before we go on to that. So, so, you know, wind the clock back. Hungary 93, first win. Um, yeah. Why, why were you so damn good in Hungary? It's like a go-kart track. You never karted. Yeah. What was it about the Hungara ring? Uh, You're always the good there. The slid around. And I like that. I like the fact that you can move the car. And I could balance the car and use the throttle. Uh, I think that's what it is. I like to drive like that. And and I also knew how to... Uh, eventually, I learned how to set up the car for that kind of circuit. I, 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 I started to understand what setups you needed for different circuits. Um, and I had my own little formula, and it seemed to work really well. Um, but Hungary... Um, I think a lot of drivers... I think I, I think I was quite good at understanding how a car because all this testing work with Williams, you know, I'd done, I had opportunities to to try tons of different things. And to be fair, with also with with uh, Formula Three when we had sell, the Selnet team, we did loads of testing with that, and we tried all sorts of different things. And I was a, a bit of a fiddler, and and then I would like to see what happens when you did that and did this and and. Um, so you and Alain Prost must have made quite a combination. Technically, well, uh, yeah. I mean, I, Alan was already well established as a the professor, but he didn't really get in too deep with the with the active car because he 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 just he knew it was too much to learn in one year. So he just got a good balance. And I think Alan is he taught. You know, I learned a lot from Alan because he didn't actually do anything to the car. He just went. He'd tell the engineers, "Oh yeah, I try a little bit of this, a little bit of that." And actually, what he was doing was just driving the car. And he got them to change things just to, so that they were happy, but really didn't change much. And he just knew that the car would come to him and over race weekend. And he just fine-tuned the balance, you know, a little bit of front wing, a little bit of that. and then Nothing too spectacular. Oh, really? That's interesting. Mm. Sort of goes against his, his reputation a little bit. He was like a pencil sharpener. <laughs> just keep sharpening the pencil next time I see him <laughs> <laughs> actually Damon you just t- talk to us about those three world champion teammates you had it was Prost of course Mansell mm. Senna yeah any anyone else <laughs> <laughs> just well I, I mean there aren't Mansell, many people Mansell in, came back for another go because in 94 he was there as well yeah. but just there aren't and many the, people in the history of Formula 1 who've had the intra-team battles that you've had um, is there one trait that you'd say applies to all three of them? Well, I was, I was asked this question recently, and oh, I have to damn. say... Sorry for asking you an unrighteous No, it's, it's a question I get. It's, 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 it's actually interesting when you look at the kind of personalities they were, the kind of physiques they were, the kind of characters they were, the way they went. They, they were different in every respect except for one or two things. One, they were lightning quick, and two they were incredibly competitive <laughs> so it just shows you i think competitive w- with you as in from a selfish wanting, point of view not not sh- with me no just the relationships with me i would say were different because they were different people they were different personalities nigel would you know like to joke around and and maybe make a little comment that you know that puts you in your place but at the same time it wasn't too aggressive or anything and Alain would just keep himself to himself and be very polite and very quiet and very, you know, very uh, gentle, I'd say. And Ayrton was, um, was intense and, and, and hardworking and, and very serious and very different personalities. I mean, they were just chalk and cheese, all of them. And, but they all were remarkably quick and talented and 
you know, I'd put Patrese in there as well. You know, he was, I uh, did a lot of miles against Patrese and he was, uh, they all have this, they all had a lot of talent, all these guys, you know. And How so, was it back then in terms of the, the, the relationship with the teammate? Was it dinner and did you have dinner together or was it no, a gregarious only, relationship? No, you do. There was sp- sponsor things you do. And then if you're testing, you, you, you'd inevitably end up eating in the moat home together or something or maybe in the hotel but no you don't you know i didn't kick around with them you know i i was a junior and i and i certainly wasn't in the in their league in terms of their reputation and standing in the sports so i knew my place but um they were all perfectly good towards were, me i never had any issues were you aware at the time that it was a very special place to be to be alongside yeah these guys of course. You, i mean i'd spent my life growing up with racing drivers around me and I my dad was a racing driver and I always looked at his buddies you know they were his they were his mates you know they came they come around for parties he'd I'd see him doing stuff with them and I just thought I think I liked that relationship I understood racing drivers I think I I do understand racing drivers but um uh but you can't have buddy relationships with people you're competitive with when you're you know racing with them and they seem to now more than they used to um but um it's it's quite difficult especially when they were i mean although i was very similar age they were a different generation in terms of their they'd already been in formula one for 10 years you say you understand racing drivers did you understand michael schumacher um i would no, I would say I didn't completely get Michael. Um, I didn't. I, I, I raced. I was. I was thrown in the deep end with Michael at the beginning of his career, as was Ayrton. You know, so um, well, he wasn't thrown in the deep end, but I was. Um, and um, so this guy was. We were all learning about Michael Schumacher and and his style of of racing and his. I mean, you know, talk about characters and personalities again a completely different style of personality to all the other guys we've just been talking about how long did it take you to forgive him for adelaide 94 i i never blamed him for anything i didn't you know it's not a question of that i mean i the season was was heavily burdened with what happened at imola and i I was put to the test in, in 94 in, in, in so many different ways. And I never started the season expecting to be in a title showdown with, with Michael Schumacher. I thought I would be tagging on to, you know, Ayrton's coattails and doing a good job num- as a number two. You know, and maybe if I'm very lucky, I could have, you know, um, put him in the shade a couple of times. But that would be almost beyond... Um, you know, uh, any reasonable belief, you know, it was, and there I was in a showdown with, with Michael for the title. And, um, and I thought I gave it my best shot and it didn't turn out. And what, what did happen was controversial and I think surprised everyone, certainly surprised me. (laughs) (laughs) But you come round, I can't remember what corner number it was, but you come round that left hander and he's suddenly going so much slower than you. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, but I'm going to overtake him. (laughs) But you didn't, you didn't think he must have a problem to be going that much slower. You don't have time. I'm not that clever, Tom. No, you are, Dane. Honestly, I, I think a lot of people I, I look, just, because in hindsight, with the benefit of hindsight, oh, Damien, if only you'd waited. I do, uh, completely, of course. Yeah. That's the, with the benefit of hindsight. And I don't spend my life looking at it on YouTube and going, oh, look, if I, if I just tried something different. It all looks pretty, it all looks rather pathetic, actually, in hindsight, when you look at it. It's a, I mean, he went up on two wheels, and, but it wasn't a big crash, was it? I mean, it was, it was all just a bit sad. I do, I do think to myself oh god we could have at least tried to fix the suspension when we got back to the pits um we never know you you well, no, there's those got, there's those you can see it's bent yeah but and there's I the think, scenes of patrick or yeah. someone trying to pull it i don't think that would have worked no, but, no, I don't, didn't really. but i think all we had to do is finish and he would have got a point yeah and that would have been enough but um yeah. so um but you, you how know, long did it, it take you to get over 
the disappointment of 94 because do you think your performance I wasn't is in disappo- 90- this is i wasn't disappointed in 94 i gave it my best shot you know and i had a great battle with michael i was more looking forward to 95 to 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 go okay this time we're gonna but then, um, do you think i mean emila the emotional stress of that weekend and, and what followed mm. do you think in a sort of latent exhaustion kind of way that affected your performance in 95 yeah i think i'd gone i went straight through 94 straight into some like promotional stuff i can't remember what we did we did at the I end think, of 94. i think i went on a promotional tour of china and i think that's what happened yeah um and then i went straight into the season and i think i was i never had a chance to recharge my batteries over the winter and um i i didn't we and we had we had issues again in 95 with the car and i think we um uh yeah it was a it wasn't as seamless as it should have been um uh, and then i got into the wrong end of a lot of other collisions with michael and i think 95 was a disastrous year. Although I won races, I'm you know was up there, but I just I got I got I was put on the ropes by Michael, and and he kept on punching me. <laughs> he did, didn't he? Yeah. Just one question, if I may, about Imola, which was, um, you know, do you ever question your decision to get back into that Williams for the restart? No, I don't. Would you? I, I, well. When you when didn't you, know what had caused it. Okay, first of all, you can't go back and change anything. Secondly, I would I, I completely trusted Williams. And I when they if they said to me, you know, it's okay, I I put my life in their hands and I completely trusted them. And I and I've always gone racing with that view. I've always gone, okay, you're a, you're an adult, you know you know there are risks, you know every racing driver should know that they that people that they work with are giving it a hundred percent, but nothing can be guaranteed a hundred percent. People make mistakes that things happen and you have to accept that's part of the deal. And so I was with that team and they, they, you know, I, I had no qualms about, um, getting on with the race, you know? So they, they said, carry on. But, you know, in retrospect, everyone was kept in the dark. You know, I didn't know what happened to Ayrton. I knew it wasn't good, but everyone was in the dark at the restart. A lot of things had gone wrong. That, that, I mean, someone had been hurt in the crowd in that restart when they, um, the Lamy first start. And and, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, so it was, it was a bad weekend and not all way, you know, in all, in all different directions. And um, you wanted it, our reaction is to, is to, is to race. Is that's our only way to, to um it's to fight to get you know to to mm-hmm. respond rather than give up and just go away and stop doing it something we touched on a little bit earlier was so <laughs> frank and patrick were thrilled that you won the world championship in 96 do you feel that was your best season in formula one yeah i think it was it was i was more complete i understood what it took to see yourself for a season and I got, um, because I'd had such a torrid season in 95 and I came off badly in the way I dealt with the media and that affected my confidence. And How do you deal with the media? I can't remember. Well, you, you just, you've got to understand that you're, um, you're fodder. You know, you, you've got to understand that you, you, people like you, Tom, are not your friend. <laughs> You know, you can't be that person. You have a job to do and you have, and if there's a question that needs to be put, then you're going to put it. And if you get quotes, you know, uh, undermining you from other places, then you've got to take it with a pinch of salt or, or deal with it in the right way. And I didn't understand all this stuff. I, I, and so I literally, I contacted this person called Mary Spillane, who is a, uh, <coughs> media consultant and um, she came over to Ireland and she so just, this is what winter of 95, 96 yeah yeah, yeah. and um, so I pulled my heart out to her and she just said uh, just gave me a few tips and 
What what sort of tips? Um, shut up. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> no, basically. To no, the, the, make a Hakkinen school of yes, the less you say, the less ex- hassle yeah. you get. I mean, I was I I was having what I thought was a bit of fun in the papers with saying stuff about Michael or this, and it always seemed to backfire on me because he, he was much more um, adept at doing it, and and you know. He, he, and also, if you don't win, then you're always the sucker. So she gave me some basic media tips, which were to follow some simple rules. And let me tell you, they, they work. You know, they, they, they t- it took me, it took Say me less. a lot. It took me, you know, I just knew not to, not to invite controversy. Yeah. Because you just, unless you're Donald Trump, it doesn't, it doesn't work for you, you know. Yeah. Some people it does work for, other people, it, like me, it doesn't. You said earlier on that um, Frank and Patrick were thrilled for you, that you won the World Championship in 96. How did they break the news that, (laughs) so thrilled, but actually, well, it's all coming to an end? uh, They didn't. It was in autosport as I turned up for the German Grand Prix. Was that really the first? You read it in the media first. I had had um, a little bird tell me something about... Um, the possibility that I'd lost my drive in at the beginning of the season, I think. And I kind of dismissed it. Did um, you approach, did you ask Frank? I asked Patrick and he assured me it was nonsense. <laughs> um, and I think that was in Aida. So that was that. Well, that couldn't, we didn't do Aida at the beginning of the season. So in 96, so it must have been I don't know why I think it was there, but anyway, uh, muddled. I, I can't remember exactly, but anyway, I, I, the really the first time I'd ever heard anything uh, that that I, you know, basically the, the the autosport front cover was on the table as I came into the motorhome at uh, uh, in the German Grand Prix in '96, and it says William Sachs Hill. So. That was a nice uh, message to receive just as you so were turning what, up for the race. Damon, what happens next in, in that little... Well, I got very cross with Andrew Benson who wrote the, the article and I think he was a bit crestfallen, but, um, you know, you can't shoot the messenger. He was just writing what he knew and he wouldn't say who it was who told him. But the... Um, I mean, the understanding I have now is that the, I'd lost my drive by, I suppose, because of my performances in 95. Um, but then why would you sign me for 96? Because I only ever had a one-year contract. When did they sign you for 96? Oh. I mean, was it a November would have been middle or? of. I think it would have been, yeah, it would have been middle of 95 sometime. So when I was probably still in, in, the sh- in with the shout. In fact, if it was at Silverstone, it would have been just before I crashed into Michael Schumacher for the umpteenth time. So, um, yeah, I still was in with a shout. So I, but I think that they, the feeling is that they knew they had signed, if they were going to keep me, they, they just, they'd have to put three cars on the grid for 97. So uh, it turns out they might have got themselves in a bit of a pickle. Um, uh, an embarrassment of riches, so to speak, and despite perhaps wanting to keep me, ideally they couldn't because they had another driver already under contract, and they weren't going to let go of that contract. So I had I was the one that was given the option of saying. So did you um, did you think of quitting no. at the end of '96? Do a Nico Rosberg uh, brief, and just walk uh, away? From- like briefly. Well, my my winning average was fantastic, so I was right up there with Jim Clark, I think. <laughs> and um, and so it might have been a good time to stop, but then there was so much more to. You didn't to do. seriously think of that, and no, not seriously, no. no. So what were the options on the table for '97? Well, you went a very at- short career, wouldn't it? I and mean, that was three seasons, <laughs> I think. I mean, for <laughs> what? <laughs> you know, I think I still had a few more races in me yeah so what were the options for 97 you ended up at arrows but i i know that you spoke to sauber for example um well i had to run around because basically it wasn't confirmed until monza so monza's right at the end of september and by that time all the other drives had gone so um 
I think that um, you know maybe that was deliberate or not. I don't know, but whatever. There I am, still in with a shout of becoming world champion. I wasn't world champion for certain then. I could it could have gone either way, um, but most of the other drives have been taken, and what was left was a completely new team in the shape of Stuart Racing, Paul Stuart Racing. Um, no one had ever driven them for them before. There was Sauber who had the wherewithal and a lot of money but um was it Sauber yeah it was Sauber and the, <clears throat> and but I just didn't fancy going there was Prost was there Prost um I, I do I remember they had going a decent car I think it might have been yeah, well, Panis so, remember won the Monaco Grand Prix in 96 no it wasn't Prost was it, it wasn't Prost it was sorry it wasn't Prost in 97 so there, there was very few options and I got the the nod from from Bernie who said that Tom might like want to talk to me. And I thought, well, that's a bit of a left field one, that one, because uh, Arrows, you know, but they had John Barnard going there and, I, and they had Bridgestone tyres. How and tempted were you by Stuart Grand Prix? Because there would have well, been a lovely emotional. story given that Jackie knew your old man. Yeah, well, it, that, was, that was the difficult thing. So I, I did turn him down and I felt really, uh, emotionally, I did, it was a very difficult thing to do because... There's a strong bond between the Hills and the Stuarts and, uh, you know, thanks to the old man. And um, so, and I could see what they were trying to do and I didn't really want to be rejecting Jackie. Uh, but at the same time, I just couldn't see how they could get off the ground and be competitive from scratch. So, I mean, I would really be taking a huge risk. I'd be going from one team where they've got a massive reputation to a team that hadn't done anything in Formula mm. 1. So... Uh, I went for Arrows, who'd never won a race. <laughs> but the thing with Arrows was they offered me a one-year deal. And was that important? And that was that, well, the key. The key thing was what I was looking to do. Uh, I knew I'd, I knew that ninety-seven was going to be a write-off, but ninety-eight I could end up with the Adrian Newey McLaren. So, so how knew, close did you get to that? Well, that's, you want to ask me about a 1987? Because actually, first of all, I signed for Arrows, but it was a one-year deal. Everyone else wanted a two-year deal, and I thought that, that might be why I turned down Sauber. Um, and I, I didn't want to preclude myself because I didn't want to, I, I, just, I just wanted to get through 97 and then get in the picture for uh, driving the McLaren with an Adrian Newey McLaren in 98. So there were very few high points, as you <clears throat> predicted, in 97 in that... Um, yeah, Hungary was great. Brilliant at Hungary, Damon. Almost won the Grand Prix, finished second. I can't remember yeah. what slowed you at the end. I can't remember. There was hydraulic failure. So it, it got yeah. stuck in like fifth gear. So I was like chugging around it on, on tick over. I could, didn't have a throttle or I couldn't change gear. And th thankfully it got to the line, but um, it was a shame it uh, didn't yeah. make it to the line in Gutting. the first place. Gutting. But so at that point, so of course, Hungary is always sort of August time. What was happening with the McLaren conversations for So nice? all throughout that year, I was in contact with McLaren and negotiating through my manager to to put me in the frame for driving for for Ron and um, and, and Adrian Newey was a big that, supporter of yours. Uh, well, I think he was supportive. Yeah, I think that he he put a word in for me and. Uh, it came to the crunch when they were going to, okay, they were going to condescend to speak to me on the phone, I think, was the way I'd put it. And I had some conference call and Ron um, made me an offer I just had to refuse because I was, in my view, I'd won a world championship and I had I had a residual value of, uh, of, of, least, of least of something. And what I was offered was, I'd get something if I won races and that was it. And there was no basic salary. There was nothing. It was just simply, if you do well, son, then we might, you know, give you some prize money. And I just thought, well, they, these people don't want me. They clearly don't want me to be in the team. And so I thought, I don't, I don't, I don't want to be there. It's not, it's not the right vibe. So I put the phone so down. So you went from one extreme <laughs> to the other. Of course, it was a good car, the 98 McLaren, but we were In fact, to... most of the people I've driven for, they didn't want me in the team. Um, Eddie, <laughs> Eddie tells me that now. <laughs> well, I didn't not want even you. Eddie. Yeah. I didn't want you in the team. I know, Eddie. That's why you were trying to get rid of me most of the time. So, you know, Tom was trying to get me in the team. 
but that's because I was recently Grand World Champion. It's not fair to say it because actually you know, Patrick um, was very supportive when I was coming to Williams and, you know, they, they did give me the benefit of the doubt and they gave me a fantastic leg up and an opportunity that I, you know, could mm. never, you know, it might have changed my life going for, driving for Williams. Um, it was just being unceremoniously dumped after having won a world championship. wasn't wasn't what I had expected. But, you know, when you talk to uh, the wise old owls of the paddock, they 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 all predicted it. They all knew that that's what would happen because that's what happens with Williams. It's uh, so let the champions go. <laughs> you had three team bosses in Formula One, Frank Williams, Tom Walkinshaw, Eddie Jordan. Mm. Who would you say you were closest to? Well, and you know, on, on, on the basis of, I've got a lot of affection for Eddie, you know, but he's, he's a, bit of a struggle to work with and Tom was was good but F Frank was you know he was very straightforward actually to deal with and initially initially and and also it was he was just very tight <laughs> I mean one of the things that racing drivers are conscious of Formula One drivers is their what they're being paid because the, the pay is a measure of what the person what the team value at you value at and it's a measure of your value in the sport you know and you just don't want to be taken for a ride and because you know i've driven for frank for not a lot of money for quite a few years i got paid well in 96 and then i got the sack and um thought, well this is you know it was a bit a bit of a the management the money management or the business side of it was something that baffled me and i never really got the hang of but did, did you enjoy Jordan? Did you enjoy the vibe? Because, you know, you're a music lover, you're fun loving. There was a lot to enjoy, was it? particularly no, in 98. It's none, it's, it's, that's just, that's just candy floss on the top. You know, that's, you're there to win. You, I, I didn't want to be anywhere without being in, in with a chance of, of winning something. I very nearly won a race with, um, Arrows. I did win a race with Jordan. So, out of all of my seasons, that one season I didn't win a race, if you count 93 as my first season, the, first, the only season I didn't win a race was in 97, and I very nearly did, in an Arrows. Now, that's not a bad record. 99, I didn't win, I, I, I admit. that was, a, that, But I'd already kind of mentally checked out by then, and I wanted to stop. <clears throat> but um, I've always been at the front, always managed to get to the front, in every season of racing I've ever been in. So you say you checked out early in 99. Why? You just, was it a... I wanted to stop at the British Grand Prix. Why did you embark on the 99 season if you... Well, I was, everything was positive, but the vibe had changed. Something had changed in, in 90. Within the team or within yeah, you? And, yeah, and just... Um, I wasn't enjoying the treaded tyres... You know, I'd hated them. They were just, I couldn't get a good feeling from the car. And I think um, mentally, I knew I wanted to stop at 39. I didn't want to be a 40-year-old Formula One racing driver. And it was a t I was just serving that the second year of a two-year contract. Eddie had signed me for two years. And so halfway through that, I just thought, this is going so badly. I'm, I'm, I'd want to stop. But I'd like to stop at the British Grand Prix and that make that my last Grand Prix. But Eddie being Eddie... Um, had already done deals to get a Finnish driver, I think, in the car for Silverstone, and so that was that was rendered. Um, you know, he wanted to get me out and get this other guy in, and then I got I got a bit upset about the fact that he was trying to chuck me out before I wanted to go. So we got into a bit of a wrangle over that one, and. Um, I mean, it's all patched up now. <laughs> but, um, you know, it is... Don't you play in the a, same band as Eddie now? Don't you? No, I mean, no. well, I would, I would do if, you know, if we were, if, it, if the option came up, just have a go. Mm. You know, it's charity things he, mm. he does. Mm. It's all, mm. If it's, if it's going to keep people happy and raise some money for charity, it's good fun. But he's, you know, I play golf with Eddie. I, I, I see him and his family and I've been, went to his 70th and we, you know, he's skied with him. He's... He's a lovely guy, as we know, but it's the business side of it. He's 
he's a he's a very astute business-minded person i don't know how, you know i'm not like that um i i didn't get why he wanted to get rid of me and why i couldn't just keep me on and say thank you very much after silverstone but there was some deal in the offing and it had to be done before silverstone and he never told me what that was because he wouldn't do so it's a muddle you know it's always a blooming muddle um, and I'm not the only driver to have experienced that. that, but that is Formula One. You're in a business where deals are being done, plans are being made for the future, and you're not, mostly not aware of what those are. And you find yourself in the middle of these complicated strategies between teams and uh, managers. So come the, the, the last race of 99, um, the Japanese Grand Prix, I think it was, what, you just couldn't wait to get out by that point. Yeah, no, I was done. And just start the next totally phase. Totally done. I just, I wanted to get out in one piece, you know. Go on, tell us how you... Well, then then what happened was, after Zilstone, I, I, Eddie wouldn't let me go. And I kept on thinking, what is going on here? And I, I thought I was going to be sued. So, you know, so easy, actually, Formula One's easy to, to get... I, I, in some ways, Formula One's easy to get into and hard to get out of. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's um, it's getting noisy now. So we're just Damon retirement. I I, I remember the hair being. You, you grew your hair a bit. Mm. I, I even remember. I think hanging out with you a bit. I don't remember you wearing shoes at one point. I mean, the what? Other, yeah, I think you. <laughs> I think we went somewhere and there were no shoes. But no, but I I had ba- a bad back, oh. so you need to wear. You, oh, you can't wear. Okay. Yeah, you basically you need the the nerves to be true oh, okay by, okay by but just h- how did you find retirement and and sort of easing into the next phase of your life uh, i found it very difficult i i mean i it didn't turn out quite like i expected you know i what did you expect i don't know i just i just thought it would be different to what it turned out to be it was it was it I just ended up in, I, I couldn't um, uh, untangle myself from all of these blooming obligations that I got in. I don't mean my, I don't mean my family. Actually, what I wanted to do is not do anything and just spend time with my family and taking them up and taking them to school because that's a luxury that most people never get a chance to afford, you know. So I did have that time, but um, knowing what to do next, I didn't want to have anything to do with the sport. I, you know, knowing what to do next is um, was the big challenging question. I thought I'd be doing something different, and I it never really happened because I never found the time. There was just more stuff to do. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's if you're a racing driver, it's very easy. You just go, someone else needs to deal with that because I've got a race to do. And then when you're not a racing driver, you've got to deal with it. So there's a lot of stuff that needed untangling and undoing from you know this crazy career i had where i suddenly went from nowhere to being a grand prix winner and t- fighting for the world championship in the space of like a week so what's next um You're, what's next yeah i mean <laughs> you're obviously doing tv punditry now but is there is there any particular I don't have, business I don't, no i don't i don't really i'm not a businessman i I've never really understood the uh, how all that stuff. I, I, I hate contracts. <laughs> I hate all that legal stuff is very tedious. So, you know. Has anyone approached you about running a team or being? No. no, no. So you, your involvement with Formula One will only be in your current capacity, which is TV punditry. If somebody said to me, way. if someone said to me, look, we want you to run a team. I would seriously consider it. They're not going to ask me because I, I don't, I basically, I've got no experience. And just because you've been a racing driver does not mean you know how to run a team. But what I mean, bit I, of running a team interests What's the point? That what is the, what, you know, running a team, look at Toto Wolf and, and Christian Horner. There, it's 24 seven, you know, 365 days a year. And, and I don't want to do that. So I'm, you know, I'm quite clear about that. I understand that what i feel i mean i've i I do think that i understand the sport to a level to a degree i understand sport and i understand competition 
um, and it would be nice to be able to transfer some of that or uh, you know give that back in some way but it's, it's very difficult to find the way in which to do that um, and and so you know you just move you just move on to other things you know I think uh, working with Sky has been been really interesting because it's shown me how to look at the sport from the outside in when I thought all the time I was on the inside looking out and I wasn't really so enthusiastic about the view from the outside in um, I, I'm much more interested in doing something and being the, the creator of something rather than being the spectator but um, they tell me people want to know what I have to say about what's going on and 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 give my point of view so that's what I do I listen you do all the things that when I stopped racing I thought I'll do all the things I never got time to do because I was too busy trying to get into Formula One and and you can't do that you can't you just can't you can't go back and 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 recreate time that has gone um and careers that um you, you know I like surfing I like I like I'd like to be better at golf um I like skiing <clears throat> but these are all physical activities and as I get older they get harder <laughs> um but I like and your to charity what tell us about yeah that. we do well we I was um so two things happened I suppose I was involved with the BRDC and at the same time as being involved with that um I was helping start a charity with some other families to do with learning disabilities in in Guildford uh, and, and around Surrey um, and we set that charity up and it's been going for more than 10 years now and uh, continues to grow and, and does great work so that clearly came about because uh, having had a son with Down syndrome you, you, you want to know more about the future for, for people like uh, Oliver and create activities so they do uh, the, the, the real thing that they do is is create activities for people with learning disabilities that fills the gap that is left by you know uh, by um, by education when it ends. So what happens between uh, the the period of time when they when they 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 they've got the institutions can um, can be occupying them. And when they come out, where do they go and what do they do? You know, they're still young. They still want to be active. They still want to have friends. So we provide all of that. It's fantastic. It's really fantastic. So my final question uh, for you, Damon, is um, you're sat at home. Toto Wolf picks up the phone and goes, Damon, Lewis I haven't has... got a clue what to do. <laughs> <laughs> Lewis has slipped over in the shower. Yeah. So is Esteban Ocon. <laughs> And we're really, we're really stuck. Could you, you come and do the British Grand Prix? Yeah. How close? Tom, have you any idea? <laughs> you are clearly, by how asking that question, you have absolutely no idea. I want to know how close you'd get to the pace now in a current 2019 I wouldn't spectrum. even last a lap. It's so hard. You know, even when I was fit and young, it was tough. Um, and, you know, I think it's very difficult for people to appreciate what the... the the violent environment that is in, inside a Formula One car, the heat, the concentration, the you know the stresses. Taking the physical side out of it, do you think you you could get up? No, I don't. Ha I don't but I don't have any desire to either, <laughs> Tom. You know, well, it was so lovely seeing you. We're, we're speaking at the Chinese Grand Prix, and it was so lovely yeah. to see you in your dad's Lotus doing some demo laps here at the th yeah. thousandth race and, and it I just made just, me think and it made I, me think and oh. I can tool around at a leisurely place <laughs> and I can do what I like and I'm not being chased by a load of mad people um, and or being um, t you know questioned by you, people like you and journalists as to why I'm not quick enough uh, and, and I'm and, not and, suggesting that I'm saying the, other, the opposite no, look, look, I think you fight in some ways you fight for your own autonomy what what could be more valuable than to be able to decide what you're going to do today without someone telling you you've got to be here and do that? You know that is that's that's real luxury, and I've and I can do that if I want to. I can just go okay. I'm not signing any contracts. So I'm going to go and watch plants grow or something. I don't know. Improve your golf. Improve my golf. That's that's never going to happen. Well, I'm honoured that you. Um Agreed to do this, <laughs> given all that. Um, Damon, it's lovely to chat. Thank you very much for your time. Pleasure, um, Tom. And I hope the great. listeners 
Uh, <laughs> I've been entertained or I hope they're not too confused. <laughs> All of the above probably, but Damon, thank you very much. Cheers. Well on, thanks. There was a lot in that chat, wasn't there? So many great anecdotes and so much thought. If there's one thing that shone through for me, though, it was that being a son of a world champion doesn't necessarily generate the red carpet straight to F1 that many believe. Damon really grafted to get where he did, and to achieve what he did owes much to his character. Thanks for your time, Damon. It was great to catch up. Well, that's it for another week. I hope you enjoyed the show. And as ever, we'll be back next week with another big name with another interesting tale to tell. If you haven't already, please subscribe to Be On The Grid on your favorite podcast app. And better still, help us spread the word about the show. You can rate and review us on most platforms. And if you haven't got time to do that, why not tell a friend? We love to have you all in the conversation. Speaking of which, thanks for your messages about last week's show with the straight-talking Alan Jones. You seem to like his forthright views. And here's what Audrin Lavenerable said. Brilliant podcast with Alan Jones. I listened to it twice, mostly on my way to work and during work itself. I can't wait for the next one. I'm literally addicted. Well, Audrin, was it better on the second listening? Let us know. And please keep your feedback coming. We love it. Use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid and you can tweet me at Tom Clarkson F1. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>